Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. In a world often spewing with anger and fear, we're trying to be a safe haven for all bicycle-loving folk to get together and share stories and peacefully connect. I'm your ride leader, Tom Brown, and I have a foot in so many different camps of different bicycle lovers that it sometimes feels like I'm playing Twister. It does let me see that bicycles are one of the many ways that we can connect as human beings. Today we travel back in time to when American Velodrome Cycling was bigger than the NFL, NBA, or Major League Baseball. We then hear about about how sometimes being in the wrong place at the right time helps you to avoid the tornado. And finally, we look at how some folks have combined a supported cycling tour with the fun of a farmer's market. You have a lot of podcast options out there, like lots of them. And I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me each month. Let's roll out. Cycling, competitive cycling, and overall cycling was bigger than baseball at the turn of the century. At the turn of the century, Madison Square Garden, anywhere from 1900 to 1920, would be full of spectators for six days, 24 hours a day. There was always one rider on the track for six days in a row. And the garden was full and the gambling and the smoking and the drinking and the restaurants and the celebrities that came in at all hours of the night and put up big money to watch the racing get going after they'd been out partying and been all the, the nightclubs, they'd come in to the velodrome and the place would be packed at 4 a.m. and the riders would be out there sprinting for big cash money and babies were born in the garden during the six days. I don't know how much bigger of an event you can get. I don't know if that happens today, I don't think so. Yeah, my name is Bill Humphreys. I've been involved in cycling since 1971. I had a great career as a rider and as a coach and a manager and a journalist and a race promoter for the last 40 years. And, and you know, the sport's been good to me and I've seen the world. In all my involvement in the sport, I, you know, one of the things that I started to become aware of is the history of the sport. And what I found over the years is, that, you know, the sport has exploded. It's no longer a niche cult as it was back in the 70s. So now it's open to the public and the public is huge and the, and the participation is huge. And uh, there's, there's a lot of bike riders out there of all types. What most of them aren't aware of is is the history of the sport in this country. And one of the things that people aren't aware of is that cycling, competitive cycling and overall cycling was bigger than baseball at the turn of the century. Bicycle racers in the 1890s to the 1920s made more money than baseball players. And that includes Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. So the professional sport on velodrome, banked track racing was huge in this country. And there were velodromes probably in New England. I would say there was probably 20 to 30 velodromes in New England. And every major city in the United States had a track. 
and the participation was huge. I asked him what the early velodromes were like. Well, it's a banked oval track. Uh, can be can be as long as 250 meters in length and be banked uh, as much as 40 degrees in the corners. Usually made out of wood and bleachers, and there's an infield. You know, the crowds were such at the Newark Velodrome, for instance, in New Jersey. If you couldn't get a ticket there, then you went and watched the uh, Yankees. I mean, there were. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the joke you get when you're hanging out in a bar and talking trivia with the average American sports fan is they just go, huh? You know, I mean, they just don't know anything else but the for professional sports and NASCAR. And that's about the extent of their of their sports knowledge. But that's how big cycling was. And it's all documented and not just some guy, you know, uh, trying to spout off. It's all documented. And and the other thing is, you know, I learned a little bit about who the riders were that came before me that set the stage that helped me get involved in the sport. You know, the recent history is that, well, why did the sport die off? Why why was it so popular then and now as big as it is, it's still not as big as it was. And the main reason the sport died off back in the 1920s was, you know, the advent of the automobile and the gasoline engine. The gasoline engine had a big impact on, on cycling because just for transportation purposes. And then, um, you know, of course we had World War One, and then we had the huge depression and we had World War Two, And those, those elements and the advent of the automobile just were the downturn for cycling and that's where it kind of disappeared. And started coming back, probably the recent history would be the 70s. When I got involved in the sport, it was on an upswing and money was starting to come back into the sport and it started its growth pattern there and people started paying more attention to it and it's grown from there. That's when the revival of cycling started in the 70s. So I was I was lucky to be involved in the rise in the popularity, and then I caught on with some good teams that had some sponsorship money, and I learned from some great riders, and I ended up catching the wave, as it were, uh, as a complete unknown who had totally dedicated myself to being the best bike rider I could, and just put on the blinders and was determined to come to make the U.S. team. And I was fortunate that things worked out for me. But in 1973, for instance, I was on the first United States, not professional, but fully sponsored team to go to Europe and ride an eight-day international race around Ireland. That was 1973. They didn't, when we got over to Ireland, we were sponsored by Raleigh Bicycles. And the race in, in Ireland was sponsored by Raleigh Bicycles. There was four of us that went over and, you know, all expenses paid. And we weren't expected to do well. I mean, you know, they had never seen a fully organized U.S. team. Sure, they had seen individual riders who had gone to Europe on their own and raced. But they hadn't seen a fully sponsored team that showed up race eight days, 750 miles, and uh, we surprised them. I mean, they didn't give us a chance in hell, and when the race was over, I think we were like the eighth place team out of 20 teams, and uh, one of our riders, John Howard, third, and my other uh, teammate finished fifth, and the race organizer was happy and, of course, invited us back, but the key to this was the commissar, 
the chief umpire or race official, the UCI commissar, was a guy named Phil Liggett. And Phil was had his own big race in England called the Milk Race. And he, he's the guy who does all the commentary on NBC Sports or ABC Sports. He, he's been covering the Tour de France for American audience for over 30 years, probably longer than 30 years, probably 40 years. So he looked at us and just said, you know, you guys are a little bit older than the average rider, but I, I still want to invite you to come to my race, the milk race, the following year. So we, we essentially opened up the doors to future teams to start racing in Europe. And, uh, at the time, I didn't realize how, how important a, a race that was, but uh, history proves that it, that it was a turning point for U.S. cycling. If I could interject just a little bit on that, um, yeah. one of my heroes is Greg LeMond. And yeah. when we look back at him a little bit later, when he went to Europe, it was still, I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for you a decade earlier. It was still like, Someone from America, really? And there was a lot of prejudices against people in America because our cycling culture had been so systematically uh, destroyed by the auto companies and that whole complex that wanted people to look at bicycling as a kid's thing. And it was huge and it was literally burnt to the ground in America while it continued to thrive in Europe. Am I seeing that the way it was from your perspective? Oh yeah, absolutely, very good point. You know, uh, right, uh, the history was that, you know, the sport would, would, would rise to the American public's eye every Olympic year. It would get a little bit of TV coverage on an Olympic year and then it would disappear for four years and then you'd see a little bit of track racing on the velodrome. And the Tour de France, of course, was getting bigger and bigger and starting to get television time in America. But what people don't realize and bringing up Greg is that, you know, the first American did not ride the Tour de France until 1981. And now the average sports fan is familiar with the Tour de France because, you know, Greg won it three times. Uh, Lance you know, uh, regardless of his of his history and how he did it, he raised the profile of the sport immensely during his time. And uh, you know, the 7-Eleven team, the first American-sponsored team to be professional, had great success in the tour and got a lot of TV time. So uh, people just assume, oh well, you know, Americans have always been involved in the Tour de France, and and that's not the case. You're right. It it, it took a whole another set of professional pioneers. Uh, to go over there on their own and start to make headway. I was fortunate enough to become the junior national team coach, and Greg LeMond was one of my juniors in 1978, and those kids were totally dedicated, and we had finally a European coach, uh, a guy who defected from Poland, where cycling was huge, and he came from one of their sports schools, and uh, in Poland they told American bicycle racer jokes instead of us telling Polish jokes. <laughs> and, uh, and he taught us how the, the proper way, you know, to train and and, uh, and race internationally. So I saw the rise of those juniors and what Greg turned pro at a young age in 1980. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden he wins the Tour de France in 1986 and was a world champion before that. And, you know, he was the sportsman of the year for Sports Illustrated and on the cover of the magazine in 1986. And all these talking head sports people, you know, on these big radio stations and experts were
were just like in shock, like, who is this guy who made Sportsman of the Year? And it's not, you know, a golfer. It's not an NBA player. You know, it's not an NFL player. It's not a Super Bowl guy. It's this guy, Greg Lamont. Who in the hell is he? And they were just like really shocked that this had managed to sneak by them. And when they started to read about him, every one of these sports talking heads agreed that, okay, yeah, this kid deserves to be Sportsman of the Year. So that was a huge breakthrough. And and the other aspect that came through that really helped the sport was obviously in 1980 Olympics when Eric Hyden at Lake Placid won five gold medals. And then he switched right over to bicycle racing and almost made the summer Olympic team that summer, even though we didn't go to Moscow. And he raced the entire circuit for two or three years, and he raised the profile to the mainstream meets for cycling. So between Le Mans and Eric Hyden, and then the Olympics in 1984 being in Los Angeles, and we got all kinds of medals there. Of course, the Russians boycotted it. Didn't matter. Those those three things put it in the public spotlight and and rocked it right into the uh, into the 1990s and the year 2000. You were a pioneer of all that. You were one of the first teams to go down that path and kind of help to start to pave the way. Yeah, it was. I, you know, I mean, it was me, my whole era. The guys from the 70s, we were just uh, relentless and, and, and dedicated our lives to racing. We didn't do it part time. We would race from March, you know, until October. And then we'd all get jobs winter and save our money and uh and get ready for another racing season because sponsorship and there was no professional end but we kept it going and raised the profile and and for all of us who are still able to stay in contact with each other now thanks to facebook we all have found each other again and know where each one is living which before facebook we all disappeared and nobody knew you know where most guys were hanging out and what they were doing but now that we're back and we can communicate on Facebook. Uh, we're all happy to be a part of it and uh, to see the progress that's made. I mean, if you had told us in 1973 that, you know, we're going to be winning the Tour de France and have an American team there, uh, we wouldn't have believed it. So it's been a great time to uh, see it happen. Bill actually wrote a book and it was pretty successful, uh, but it's currently out of print, so it might be hard to find, but it's called The Jersey Project, which explores the history of cycling through an amazing collection of bicycle jerseys. So check that out if you're lucky enough to find a copy. Bill right now is doing public speaking and is available for that. You know, in wrapping this up, I, I've become an excellent, well, self-proclaimed historical speaker on the sport. I spoke to a lot of different clubs around the country with the help of my book, which I can expound upon. And uh, I am available to speak to any groups in the, min in the middle of the winter, or usually is the best time. And my uh, website is therealbikeguide.com. And I'm available on Facebook. I'm a contributor to the East Coast Dinosaur riders club and my regular page i post historical postings from the 70s quite often i uh really enjoyed talking to you i love that the whole evolution of the sport and how you connect it from right now down to the past and i'm going to go ride out on a on a greenway right now on my bike and think about all that while i go all right thanks a lot i appreciate it
Hey, if you're anywhere near Connecticut on June 10th, please come check out the fifth annual Weathersfield Connecticut Bicycle Festival Show and Swap Meet. General admission is free and Cellar Space supports the Weathersfield High School Bicycle Club, where our mission is to support all positive bicycle activities in our greater school community. This year, we hope to buy a nice truing stand and have some money in the coffer for parts as we need them. If you can't make it, but would like to support the club, please check out our very reasonable wish list on Amazon. You can easily support the club with many items under $20 and have the item shipped directly to the school. Just search for WHS Bicycle Club to check it out. Weathersfield is W-E-T-H-E-R-S Field. We are in the state of Connecticut in the United States, and we have people from all the surrounding states come to this festival, so it's, it's kind of a good bicycle time. We do hope to see many of you there at the festival, so check out the event on Facebook. Key terms are Weathersfield Bicycle Festival. If you can't make it to our swap meet, please, you owe it to yourself to check out one of your local swap meets. We're one of the only ones in our region uh, especially this year right now. There's gonna be another one in Southern Connecticut after that, but a few of them have stopped, but every once in a while a new one will pop up. So go check out a swap meet. It's a good bicycle time. So what is the Farm to Fork Fondo? Well, the Farm to Fork Fondo is this really cool event that Tyler has connected with the local farmers in the area so you can ride your bike from one farm to another farm. It's all about good food. It's all about good times. It's all about good roads. And without the farmers, you don't have the food. So it's like kind of like the fun of a farmer's market plus the fun of a cycling ride. That's exactly right. Hi, I'm Ron. So there's probably a few stories on the Farm to Fork Fondo, but I've been Tyler's announcer for the last year, and I'm going to be his announcer again this year. So we're doing, I believe, eight of these Farm to Fork Fondos now, and my job is the MC. So my job is to kind of get people prepped up in the morning and get them uh, excited to get out there on their bikes and get things started and then send them off. The other part of my job with him is to greet people when they come in. So I've got a results sheet as they're coming through. I know their numbers and I find out who they are, where they're from, and greet them back in as they finish and complete the ride. And I got to tell you, there's people that come in and they are so tired and they're so spent. You can see it on their faces. They just look exhausted because they just did a really long ride. And I can see it and I just, I bring it out and I mention it to them as they're coming through and I get these big grins on their faces, and they're just so happy to come in and finish and hear a friendly voice. The, uh, the rides uh, vary. There's a Grand Fondo, which usually is somewhere in the 90-mile range, up to 100 miles. There's a uh, Midio, which is a ride which runs somewhere between 50 and 60 miles in range. And then there's a Piccolo, and the Piccolo is the shorter ride, and that's usually in the low 30s is what you're looking at. But Tyler also has incorporated one other thing, too, and it's called the Ramble Ride. And it gets a lot of people 
people that are local that are that want to go out and do the ride but they don't want to go far or they don't have the ability to go far or maybe they're there with their family their kids and the ramble ride will be about a 10 mile ride it'll go out to one of the farm stops they'll have a little something to eat sometimes it's ice cream that's always nice the kids like that and then they'll ride back and that's that's the end of their journey So yeah, I'm Fran Storch and I'm Ron Meniz's fiance and I've done a bunch of farm to fork fondos. I get to go to them with Ron, so it's really lovely. I've done many of them and um, let's see, the first time I summited a gap was on one of the farm to fork fondos and that would have been uh, the Vermont farm, farm to fork fondo that was in 2016 and I got to summit Brandon Gap, Baby Gap, and App Gap. And that was amazing. It was a very, very beautiful ride, a very long ride, 112 miles. So summiting the gaps was really wonderful. But I must say that at about nine, mile 95, there was a tremendous farm. And it was a really great farm. It's just situated at the perfect spot. It was a berry farm. And I pulled into this farm, and they were really happy to see me. Like when you go to all of the rest stops, they cheer for you as you come in. It's really lovely. And so I got in there. They they had huge bowls of fresh raspberry jam from raspberries that they were picking right then, and they had two huge bowls of two kinds of raw honey. And I don't eat gluten. They offered me crackers. I said, I don't want the crackers. They're like, all right, here's some spoons. So I'm eating spoonfuls of this raspberry jam and this raw honey. And raw honey, by the way, is a wonderful um, food, you know, an energy food to get you the rest of the way on your bike. It's terrific. And it was the best honey I ever had and the best raspberry jam. It was a beautiful sunny day. The people were really nice. You get to eat great food. Um, they have great bands and food afterwards. It's just a great time. My name is Tyler Wren. I'm from Burlington, Vermont. Farm to Fork Fondo yeah. Series. Uh, I got a ton of stories. Uh, it's, it's a great event. Uh, the, the thing about it is it's so inclusive and you get all types of cyclists. You know, I spent my pro cycling career uh, just with racers who were really focused on, you know, difficult courses and uh, the people we get at these events are just, they want to be fit, they want to enjoy the food and the farms. Um, I had this great story of uh, our very first Farm to Fork Fondo event was in Hudson Valley and we put so much planning into it, uh, but the day of the event, it was a miserably cold, rainy day. And uh, people came in from 30 plus states to that event and we had one a uh, couple come in from Michigan, and the woman um, was a beginner rider. She'd never ridden her bike in the rain, but she'd driven in from Michigan. And she came up to me before the, the, the start, and she said, Tyler, is it okay if I drive my car to the aid stations and get the treats from the farms and then drive back to the finish? And I said, sure, that's fine by me. And so she went ahead, and she drove around to the farms, and then she came back to the finish. She said, she said, Tyler, that was the most fun I've ever had at any bicycle event I've ever been to. I can't wait to come back next year and actually ride. <laughs> and I just uh, put my head in my forehead, and I said, uh, you know, thanks for coming. And so these, uh, it's great. I love, I love our participants. They, uh, they're great. Well, we started out um, in the Northeast, uh, but we've been expanding. So we have eight different events this year throughout the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, and we plan to, to keep expanding every year.
Yeah, so everything is on our website, farmtoforkfondo.com. Uh, you can find all the information about the, the routes, uh, the menus, the different events that we have, what's included, all the pricing, and you can register there as well. So farmtoforkfondo.com. Thanks to Fran, Ron, and Tyler. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Ron's show, Bicycle Talk. I love to get people involved in cycling. That's what I really, really like to do. Okay, my name is Ron. I'm also known as Pedlin' Ron. I am the ambassador of cycling, and I've been the ambassador of cycling my whole life. I love bicycles, love talking about bicycles. I have a weekly podcast and radio show called Bicycle Talk, and, uh, you know, talking about bikes is, is what I do. I broadcast out of the University of Connecticut radio station in Stores, Connecticut. If you want to contact me and, and be on the show, or you have some interest in contributing information to the show, anything interesting that you might have that you want to share about bicycles, bicycle talk, the numeral one at gmail.com is my address. Or you can also reach me on Facebook, and that is bicycle talk on Facebook. Whether you're on the road, mountain, or other, I bet we can all relate to try and get ready and it takes longer than you thought it would. And at some point, your significant other says, oh, I thought you left a long time ago. And you feel like, yeah, I wish I left a long time ago. I'm still getting my stuff together. So that can be very frustrating, especially for new cyclists, is getting all your ducks in a row before you get out on the bike, because there's nothing worse than forgetting something. I learned a little mantra that just kind of helps me to not get frustrated with how long it's taking me to get ready sometimes. When I start to feel myself get frustrated about how long it's taking me to get out of the house, I think to myself, the universe is keeping me from going right now because I'm going to miss an accident or I'm going to miss a close call and that's nice so I'm not gonna feel bad about starting off a couple minutes later than I would have sometimes that really works well and you avoid the rain you get home right before the rain starts other times you get out just as it goes from being sunny to dark clouds Michael White had some of these ups and downs of touring in Canada, but it turned out to be really lucky that he was where he was when he was. A little bit later, and it could have been bad. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was biking from my mother's house in Wasaga Beach to my father's house in Ottawa, as opposed to driving it, because every time I come to Canada, I tend to, to drive between the two of them. But as I'd taken up cycling in the UK, I wanted to give myself a challenge, so I decided to, to try and bike it. And uh, everything that could go wrong in that trip did, but I learned a, a fantastic amount of multi-day bike touring about what not to do and what to do, <laughs> mostly about what not to do. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, uh, as I said, my name is Mike White. I'm originally from Brampton in Canada, uh, but I call Ottawa home, uh, more than Brampton. Lived in the UK for the last 15 years. Now just recently moved back to Miami. I started cycling when we lived in Miami the first time, but we moved to the UK about three months after I took it up. So I really got into cycling in the UK. Started riding a lot with a 
organization called CTC, which is now called Cycling UK. Uh, and they really got me into, into all the cycling that I do. Uh, so now I do a lot of long distance riding, a lot of sportive rides, and I'm just trying to get back into that stuff out here in the, the US. I was an EMT in Canada, and I've served in the military both in Canada and the UK. And that's pretty much me in a nutshell, I figure. <laughs> So I started, I believe it was a Wednesday, but it was definitely 7 o'clock in the morning because it was a nice, cool day for me to start, and I, and I took off from my mom's house. Obviously, the first mistake you make is turning right when you're supposed to go left, but I didn't realize it until I was at the bottom of a big hill, so that was my first mistake of the day. But once I reclimbed that, and I was doing probably about an hour, hour and a half, I realized that none of the roads are paved. I forgot that because Canada is such a big country, we don't have all the roads paved. Only the very major ones have been paved. So my 110-mile ride for the day is going to be mostly on unpaved dirt roads, uh, which wasn't too bad. They were fairly hard-packed, but there were loose sections like trying to bike through beach sand type of thing. What I also didn't uh, plan for is I, I took a lot of back roads, trying to avoid a lot of the fast-moving traffic and avoiding all the, the traffic inside of towns. But what that left me is with no way to replen my water or any of the food that I had. So I got 110 miles to go for the day, and I've got no way to refill my two water bottles. So I learned to uh, adjust that really quickly on the next uh, on the next day. But I was able to veer off my course a little bit and, and get into some smaller towns and, and get some water and some food for me for the day. Yeah, so I'm, I'm riding a mixture of roads and trails. There's a, a trail that they're building. It's supposed to, supposed to go from the coast to coast in Canada called the Trans-Canada Trail. So I was on that and off that for parts, for long parts. Uh, I don't think it's fully finished yet, but they're still working on it. And I'm coming into a city called Aurelia, and I'm looking to actually get onto the actual Trans-Canada Trail at that point. Uh, and it's through some mount, some wooded areas, and I'm just down this dirt road trying to find the, the entrance off into the woods off on my left. And I'm biking along. There's nobody else on the road it's just me just biking along in my own little world and then eventually this pickup truck comes up behind me and it's one of these big pickup trucks that you know when it's sitting right on your wheel by about six feet you can't see the driver like it is that high all I could see was grill when this pickup truck is coming behind me and I start to get the usual you know aggro that cyclists get from a lot of drivers you know he's leaning on the horn He's revving the engine, he's getting closer and then backing up, and he's yelling out the, the truck that he's in. But because it's a big diesel engine, I can't really hear what he's saying. But I figured it's just the usual anti-cyclist stuff that gets yelled out at us all the time. Uh, I moved over to the right-hand side of the road, hoping that he would pass me, uh, and he just didn't seem interested in doing that. And it was a wide enough road, even though it was unpaved, for him to do that. Anyway, so he's behind me for about two minutes. And I finally see my turn into the woods uh, for the pass. It's beautifully marked, so it was well done for whoever manages that part of the trail. So I move out to take the lane as you do, not that it was a real lane, it's a dirt road, so I could turn left into these woods. And as I do that, he undercuts me on the right-hand side, almost slides his truck into the ditch, and then cuts right in front of me uh, and, and stops the truck right at the entrance, blocking the entrance to the trail. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, what does this dick want? You know, like, I haven't done anything to him. The road was completely clear. I'm thinking, you know, what is it he wants? And he starts to jump out of the, out of the pickup truck. And I'm clipped into my pedals because I have um, mountain bike SPD shoes on at this point. And, and I'm thinking, great, he wants to have a fight. And I'm thinking, I'm still clipped into the bike. I have to get off the bike. Get off the bike. Get off the bike was my only thought that I could think. 
and I managed to get off the bike, and I positioned the bike uh, fully loaded with my bags in between me and him. And he just comes out and, and starts asking me questions like, how far have I gone today? Where am I headed? What, what's my total distance that I'm going to do? Uh, and all sorts of these questions. And, and it turns out he's a mountain biker. He's, he's just curious to see what I'm doing because he saw the bags all over the bike and he wanted to know what I was doing. So obviously I have to get my heart rate and breathing back under control because I thought he was coming out to beat the hell out of me. And I had to explain to him, said, look, buddy, do you realize what you just did to me? You scared the hell out of me with all of that stuff. I thought you were coming out to beat me. Uh, and he apologized completely and, and, and profusely. He had no idea, you know, how his actions had made me feel because apparently he doesn't ride on the road. He only rides on the mountains. And so he apologized profusely and had the most Canadian-esque thing that you could possibly imagine is he runs a maple syrup farm about a mile up the road from where we were talking. So he invites me to go and have, uh, have a tour of his maple syrup farm that had been in his family for generations. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the actual farm. Otherwise, I would, uh, I would let you guys know it. Uh, so he gives me a wonderful tour of of this farm, a lot of old history, a lot of tools there, a lot of pictures, a couple of famous uh, people that had been there, and it was absolutely beautiful too. Again, you know, it was about an hour that I was there with the guy, and I had good conversations, uh, and everything was fantastic. So he, uh, it's time for me to head off, so he, he gives me a couple of bit of, um, of maple candy, which would be great, you know, on a long-distance ride like that, but he also gave me a gallon of maple syrup, which is great, but... That thing weighs a ton when you're already loaded to bear, and I had to strap it onto one of the bags, which was... Um, not an easy thing to do, uh, and then you have balance issues on top of that. But anyway, so that was great. We, we parted on good ways. Uh, he did give me a business card, but I lost it on the trip, unfortunately, which is why I can't remember the name of the, the actual farm. And I carried back on up the road to find uh, my trail again. Popped into the uh, city of Aurelia, went and had uh, lunch at an AMW, uh, which is kind of like a McDonald's-esque uh, restaurant in Canada. And then it was time for me to, to head off again. But by this time, the wind was really starting to pick up. Uh, and it was obviously a headwind, uh, you know, as a cyclist, you only ever have headwinds. And I have to go through Aurelia because I have to get over a bridge, so there's no way I could have avoided this city anyway. So I cross over the bridge to get to the other side, heading towards Kawartha Lakes, which is where my warm showers people were uh, were based. And this is all before GPS time, so I only have route cards. So I only have traveled this many miles on this road, turn right, and then another, you know, this many miles. But at the other side of Aurelia, there was road work, so I had to detour, so that messed up all my math. And I you know, 90 some odd miles, you can't do math anymore anyway. So I got myself a little bit lost, but I'm in farming country and I know farmers tend to know each other. And from what I understood where I was staying, uh, they were a farm as well. So I start knocking on farm doors and seeing if they know uh, where these people live and where I am. And I think I hit three houses before I finally found someone that knew these people. And I was only two or three miles away from them uh, when I found that. So I managed to, to get myself to this family's place, got my bike in their garage, uh, and literally got into the house before the heavens opened. And it just, I mean, it was torrential downpour. You couldn't see six feet in front of you. It was coming down so thick. And uh, my warm shower uh, host gave me the, the news that uh, they were exceptionally worried about me because I was a number of hours late because I got lost, of course. But uh, about an hour after I left Aurelia, a tornado had come through and almost wiped it off the map. So I was the, that was the, the wind that was picking up. And apparently it did some good damage to this guy's maple syrup farm as well, as a lot of other people's houses and businesses, of course. Uh, but I had managed to, to miss it by about an hour. So I was really, really lucky on that first day and got in before any of the rain really hit me as well. So that was day one. <laughs> day two was pretty fun too.
Just to give you a quick thing on my third day of riding, my back tire exploded. <laughs> if you can imagine. <laughs> like I tell you, everything that could go wrong did. And are all your toys like this? Or is this one <laughs> this of is the only one that stands out? Uh, this is the only one I've done, actually. I am planning a, another long one because I live in Miami now. I have a, a route planned from Miami to Ottawa. I forget the mileage. I think it's 2,800 miles or something like that. So I've planned it for 30-some-odd days. And I'm also planning... And that's just for fun. I just want to do that for fun. But I'm also planning a ride for Help for Heroes in, in the UK. I believe it's Wounded Warrior here in the US, and I believe it's the Canadian Legion in Canada. I want to ride the coast to coast to coast of Canada, so from the Arctic Ocean to the Pacific, and then across to the Atlantic. And that should take me eight, nine months, I figure. So if people want to find out more about your adventures or if they want to support you on your rides, where would they go? Uh, I don't have any actual um, uh, websites or anything like that. I'm just on Facebook. But if they, uh, it's under the email mpwhite75 at gmail.com. So if they do that search on Facebook, then they can find me and, and I keep track of all the rides that I do on there. So. Okay, thank you so much. No worries, man. Take care. Okay, thank you. Bye. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I want to thank the band Mobjack and Keller Glass for our opening and closing theme music. Go check them out at mobjackmusic.com. Thanks again to Bill Humphreys for sharing his story on the history of cycling, Michael White for sharing his touring story, and to Ron, Fran, and Tyler from the show Bicycle Talk and the Farm to Fork Fondo. Thanks also to all the folks who've done over 16,000 downloads in 50 states and over 50 countries. Countries. Still looking for that dream email from Oprah and at least one listener in Greenland. If you are a potential sponsor or have an idea for the show, please feel free to contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. The best thing you can do as a listener to help is just share, follow, and leave a positive review. I know it takes a couple of minutes, but it's really appreciated and really helps the show out. Thank you. Speaking of which, I'd like to thank T.O.D. for the nice comment. Luggerson for the nice review on iTunes, and whoever is listening in Benin, Africa, you rock. You light up that whole country. And new followers, Marco Quaglio, IJ Simpson 40, Tony Russoto, Wahed's Shaman Sudan, and Ali Catalina. Thanks a lot for following. The Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast and related content are the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. Copyright, trademark, and all other rights are asserted and reserved. And now a word from Taryn. My dad doesn't want to lose any listeners, so before you take a ride, take a moment to do your ABC quick check. Check your air, brakes, chain line, quick releases, and do an easy overall check before you go barreling down that giant hill. Thanks for coming along for the ride this month. Until next time, keep, keep it, it wheel. wheel.